This week on Dig Me Out, it's the roundtable discussion of Australian music of the 90s. Tim and Jay welcome friend of the show, Gavin Reed from Brisbane, and Double J producer and writer, Dan Bahaja from Sydney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 222, 222 of the podcast, and we are in the middle of our month dedicated to Australian bands. Before we started the show, Jay, we talked about we've we've covered a lot. Covered yeah. th- before that we kicked off this month, 13 episodes we did so far, or we've done so far um, on Australian brands. And since we're going to be doing a roundtable, we thought we had to have the person who's primarily responsible <laughs> for all of, uh, not all, but a lot of the bands. I think it was because we, we did a Super Jesus record, and he was like, no, 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 you have to, here, here are the bands that you need to check out. Uh, it was Ammonia, Tim. Oh, it was Ammonia. That was it. Okay. Oh, that was like the second or third episode, wasn't it? Yeah, 14, it was actually. Really but it was close. Um, and then we got into UMI and Asteroid B612 and Scream Feeder, Huda Gurus. So, and that that's taken us down that path. So joining us from Brisbane, Gavin Reed, our Australian correspondent. Thank you for joining us once again, Gavin. Yeah, no worries. How are we all going? Doing well. So far, so good. Yeah. So far. Even though we had some time zone issues. <laughs> However, we've straightened those out. And joining us from, is it Sydney? Do I have that right, Dan? That's right, Sydney, Australia. Joining us from Sydney, uh, that voice is Dan Bahaja, producer and writer for Double J Radio. Um, and actually, so this is how we stumbled upon this. Jay sent me a link to an article on the Double J it's called 10 Australian Bands from the 90s Worth Revisiting. And we were like, oh, this is perfect for the Australian month. And thought, well, we should get the author of this article on because then we can talk about Australian bands because this is right up the podcast's alley. So thanks to the wonderful world of Twitter, reached out to Dan and she's now joining us from uh, Sydney. So uh, we did get the time zone issue worked out. I still don't know what time it is. I think it's I I think it's almost two o'clock p.m. where you guys are. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yeah, it is. Is that a bird in somebody's background? <laughs> yeah, I've got one outside of you. That's awesome. <laughs> that is that's <laughs> right. <laughs> is that like a wild toucan or something? Or do you... <laughs> Let, let's say it is. Okay. <laughs> it's probably a seagull. Okay, oh, of course, because you live because he lives on the beach. In the, uh, out in the, uh, golden, is it called the Gold Coast? Is that what it's called? Uh, Sunshine Coast, that the is. The Sunshine it. Coast. Yeah. Even better. Yes. <laughs> so we got a couple of, Jay and I, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of albums, but we don't have a really good big picture idea of Australia in the 90s when it comes to music. And I think we wanted to have some some people on. We failed to do this when we did our Britpop episode. We got, we caught a little bit of heat because we did an we did a roundtable on Britpop and failed to include anybody, you know, from the UK on that episode. So it didn't give us a real good overview of, of Britpop. We had to sort of surmise it on our own. So I I wanted to get you guys on and ask a couple questions about Australia in the '90s. Uh, obviously, the story of the United States in the '90s is Seattle. You know, that's the that's the 
the narrative that everybody knows. Nirvana explodes, Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains come out of the Seattle scene, and that sort of sets the stage for the rest of the decade. Of course, there's more to it than that, but that's sort of the the generic story that most people know. I'm curious, and I'm going to start with you, Dan. Can you give us a little bit of a backstory on the bands that influenced the bands going into the 90s in the same way that like R.E.M. In, from the 80s was a big influence on you know 90s bands in the U.S. or say um, you know Dinosaur Jr. Or, or sort of those bands. What were the bands that like Silverchair or Ammonia or, or so, some of the other bands that we're going to talk about? We mentioned like UMI or Scream Feeder or those sorts of bands. Can you get into some of the bands that were influences on those bands? Yeah, well, I think in Australia through the late 70s, there was a bit of a, a, a punk scene, a kind of small and young punk scene. But some of those bands became big influences on bands all around the world. You guys have probably heard of The Saints and maybe Radio Birdman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, following that, there was a thing called kind of pub rock. Pubs are where Australians go to drink. And in the 80s, it was also where everyone went to see live music. And there were heaps of guitar bands that came out of that scene. The Celebrate Rifles, Kim Salmon fronted a band called The Scientists. Um, And I think a lot of the harder rocking bands in the 90s were probably following on in their footsteps. But at the same time, there were plenty of bands doing a a lighter kind of guitar sound, a real kind of pop sound. And um, bands like The Go-Betweens and The Triffids were writing very kind of literary lyrics and, yeah, delivering a bit of a, a softer sound. So I think in 90s Australia there was both those things kind of following those two, those two uh, genres. Was there a particular um, city or region that was producing certain sounds in the way that, like, Seattle was producing a lot of bands that had that metal plus punk sound? Is there Are there cities in Australia that have sort of a certain sound to them? I don't think it's as stark as, as what was happening in Seattle. I think there was quite a bit of diversity in each city but at the same time you know Brisbane that's where the go-betweens were from so there were quite a few bands up there that did a quirky take on guitar pop in the same way that the go-betweens did and then down in Melbourne where you know the winters are longer and the days are darker during that time of year a lot more people are inside reading and absorbing the arts and I think in Melbourne you've got a few more of those kind of art rock bands coming out of there. Okay Gavin in terms of um uh, depth of knowledge is goes back to uh, going back to that USB stick that you sent us many years ago. Yep. It included bands like the Saints and, and Radio Birdman. Um, I'm curious as to you know when did you get into music? Were you in Brisbane at the time, or was it? No, I was in Melbourne at the time. Okay. And what sort of bands um, were you seeing when you were like, say, a teenager, or or even earlier, if, you, if that was the case? Yeah. Um... Dan's right, Melbourne was a far more rock sort of oriented um, place. Uh, 
the centre of the scene for me in particular was the Esplanade Hotel in St Kilda, which has bands on every night um, and generally for nothing. Uh, so you'd go and see, like you could go and see the Beast of Bourbon or you'd go and see a very, very early version of UMI or something like that. Um, yeah, that, and I think also there was a bit of a, um, there was a sound coming from Geelong, which was very, very strongly based, or it sounded very similar to the Seattle sound, which is um, bands like Hoss and Board and um, God and Feed Time and these kind of bands. I think I've sent a few of those to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was the sort of dirtier sound. I don't, I, maybe maybe it's just down to being further away from a big city or, um, but that was sort of coming up from there. And I think going back a bit to the, um, the, the two big influences that I see, I think, I think the, the Saints are, are just a massive influence over all of this and the scientists as well. That was, you know, they were just, and I, I think, in, I think it's even be, becoming more evident now, you know, that, that that's where it all came from sort of thing. Well, they, the scientists came up. I recently read, uh, based on your recommendation, the Mud Honey book, and yeah. they are pretty open about the fact that when they before they broke, well, they I don't know if Mud Honey ever really broke in the United States, but after the Seattle scene blew up and they got more recognition, they were pretty open about the fact that the scientists were an, an influence on them, and there was sort of like a cross pollination that was going on between Mud Honey and their sort of dirty garage sound and what um the scientists were doing they were going over they were actually record they would go over and spend some time playing shows and would spend time in the studio recording seven inches in australia while they were on tour and um another band that came up as far as sort of gaining an audience in australia before they were more mainstream here was sonic youth i'm just curious about you know what sort of an influence does do bands outside of Australia play on Australian bands? Is it is it American bands tend to be very American focused until something like Radiohead comes along, and then you have like fifteen Radiohead clone bands. You know, the guy singing falsetto and lots of you know anthemic big guitar sounds. And I'm curious if that sort of thing happens with Australian bands, where they take that influence from outside the country or if it's a bit more insular um, in terms of influences? I think definitely Um, Australian bands are looking outside as well as inside. I think every band's different. And I think in the 90s there were definitely a group of bands looking to the grunge sound and kind of morphing it here for local audiences. But at the same time there were plenty of bands looking to the Brit pop scene that was coming out of the UK and doing that kind of retro guitar, almost Beatles-esque sound in their kind of indie, indie sound here. So yeah, I, I definitely think there's outwards-looking bands here all the time. I think we've got a. Um, there's also a bit of a cultural thing here, like the whole, um, you know, preceding grunge. We had the whole hair metal thing, and while that was big here and sold a lot of records, we didn't really have many bands at all who act, who tried to look like that or behave like that, because I think Australia just would have laughed at them. Um, <laughs> Just um, so our hard rock bands at the time are more of your ACDCs and the Angels and Jason's favourite Tattooed Rose. Um, <laughs> never let you live that one down. Um, so we never really got the massive hair and that kind of thing. And I, I, that would probably be similar with all the other, with all the genres. Like we don't, I don't think we copy it as blatantly. You know, we kind of take it on board more and, and reinterpret it as our own thing. Absolutely. And I think also. 
Yeah, um, and also from listening to, to your podcast, when I send you an album, and obviously it's one I've grown up with and I know it deeply and it's the first time that you guys have heard it, they always sound less produced than what would be an equivalent band in America. You know, they always just sound a bit dirtier. That's an interesting point because we celebrated uh, at the beginning of this year, the 1995. We did an entire podcast just on albums released in 1995. And I kind of think of 1995 as far as Australia making a, a bigger dent in the United States than it ever had with Silverchair and Ammonia. Ammonia with basically one single, but Silverchair with an entire album that had, I think, like three singles that charted fairly well off the Frog Stomp record. And it seemed like 95 was like, that was a breakthrough. Obviously, people knew you know ACDC or, or Crowded House. But in terms of the, the 90s sort of alternative movement, nobody had really made a, a, as big an impact as those two bands. I'm curious what the reaction was back in Australia, if you guys have any idea to when, you know, Silverchair explodes on an international basis, whether the people were excited about that or whether they were found it odd. I think, uh, I think what very quickly it was pride in the whole this has happened, but we have a um, saying here of a tall poppy syndrome, and that comes around pretty quickly. So within six months or something, we were probably all a little bit anti, you know, and they were probably saying things like they were too big for their boots and calling them Nirvana in pyjamas and things like that. But as far as ammonia goes, I would, I would never have known that ammonia sold any singles in America. Um, that's a big surprise to me. The more recent one that's happened has been uh, Jet has sold a bit over there, and that's mm-hmm. embarrassing, you know. Um, <laughs> not even, you know, embarrassing in terms of, geez, there's so much more we could have given you. <laughs> yeah. You provided the soundtrack to a lot of bad commercials. <laughs> yeah, basically. That's basically what that, that band is now. They're, you know, that song just become like the, you know, the generic, when I need a retro-sounding, up-tempo, you know, fun rock song everybody goes and grabs uh, that jet song yeah the commercials cheaper than buying the originals by the stooges or something probably <laughs> yeah <Right>. exactly <laughs> well I ammonia go ahead dan can i just jump in really quickly sure the way i see it is the bands that please a lot of people are often the band with an un- unapologetically you know throwback sound and they're easy to understand by a mainstream audience and they're often the bands that break through in any market and I think there were people in Australia who 
didn't think Silverchair was for them because they were into more alternative sounds or they were into, you know, something a bit more edgy or a bit more interesting. And I think those people were always going to be a little bit down on the success of the band either here or overseas. But I think generally most people were really happy that some young guys who came up on their own and were writing their own songs from the age of 15, I think everyone was pretty proud of Silverchair when that when they came through. Was there a very definitive change as the 90s came in? Obviously in America, I mean, it was a dramatic, probably will never happen again, seismic shift in music tastes that occurred in, uh, I would say, between 1991 and 1992. You know, it, it was just an incredible switch from from what the 80s was to what to what the, this new, you know, alternative style of music was. Was there a, a huge dramatic shift like that in Australia um, in terms of overall sound and what bands were popular and, and the direction of popular music? Um, well, I, I'd say definitely, yes. I think there was a seismic shift in music taste. I think there was a seismic shift in the media seeking out underground bands. Obviously, after the success of Nirvana, everybody wanted to find the next underground band that was going to be huge. And mm-hmm. I think there was a seismic shift in record companies spend on those kind of bands. So yeah. more underground bands got signed. They had their stuff distributed. They had film clips made for them for the first time so they could be on music TV. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of stuff changed in the 90s, and we'll never see that kind of – we'll definitely not see that investment in music again, I don't think. Right. It's the reason this podcast exists, <laughs> because there's <laughs> such a wealth of uh, material that was generated based on all that all that money that was put into it to find to find the next Nirvana. Um, it's created a treasure trove for Tim and I to, to go through, so in Australia it was no exception apparently. Yeah, probably on a smaller scale, but I'm sure it happened here, yeah. I reckon the um, the CD shop I did most of my shopping at um, went from having maybe two rows in the alternative section to 20 within 12 months. Yeah. And and obviously the music in there was so varied all of a sudden. You know, previous to that it was the bands that we've been mentioning and now all of a sudden there was all, all this other new stuff and you often did have to just buy on, on the basis of that's supposed to sound like this or that cover looks like something I'd like, you know, because you hadn't heard them. Mm -hmm. That sort of came out of nowhere. In terms of um, bands, I I mentioned earlier, uh, Silverchair and then Ammonia had a a single with drugs that that did really well in the States. When those bands broke, and you mentioned about, you know, sort of being a backlash after six months, were there other bands that people were, I guess, more supportive of or thought, no, 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 this is the band you guys should be listening to, not... You shouldn't be listening to Silverchair. You should be. This is a much better band, or this is a much better album that came out around that time. Are there any, Kevin? Can you think of any examples of, of bands or albums? Uh, um, yeah, absolutely. Which and not to knock Silverchair with that either, but um, I mean, as you know, I've always wondered why UMI couldn't get a start anywhere else. They had, I, um, like the stats might not back me up completely, but I think their first five albums all went to number one in Australia. So it's not like they were unknown um probably not so much a singles band that that probably didn't help them certainly in the background i mean a, a band like who would never get played on the radio but um a band like the cosmic psychos who are still going been around for 25 years basically play grunge um proceed it being popular they and they i think one of them was going out with one of the women from l7 at one stage so they got l7 out here a couple of times and that that's fairly similar to their sound but there's a lot of bands like that for me who just will never get heard a, a, a band like the mark of Cain, 
um, who will never get hurt anywhere, but everybody's heard Helmet, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think they're a better version of the same, personally. Um, and then, you know, kind of go on and on with that kind of thing, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think there is quite a few. What about for you, Dan? Yeah, I agree. Uh, UMI was probably the band that came to mind first for me because they are so loved by alternative music fans in Australia and critics in Australia. Everything they do is fantastic and, and people really kind of understand that um, who get to hear them. So I guess there was always a little bit of disappointment for people that they didn't get heard as widely as um, they would have liked. And I think as well, there's plenty of bands that got heard all around Australia. We have a great radio station here, Triple J, which is linked to Double J, the radio station that I work for now. Um, And we're really lucky that it's funded by the government and it goes to every city and almost every regional town around Australia. So a lot of bands did have a good run here in the 90s getting heard on national radio, but there were plenty that weren't, like as Gavin was talking about, you know, bands like Cosmic Psychos that are probably a little bit harder or, you know, punkier than, um, than what would fit a kind of mainstream radio format. One of our commenters, uh, Stephen Fraser, mentioned a show called Recovery. It was on ABC TV as being kind of uh, influential and important for the scene. What other, you mentioned Double J and Triple J, what other sort of curators existed to, to help support the music of the 90s in Australia? Well, following on from what Dan said, tri- Triple J was the big one. That that Triple J brought alternative music to the general population, but the, mm-hmm. the other one's Rage, um, which is a overnight, it probably started about half past ten or so, um, just basically just video clip show that ran through till, I don't, I don't even know, but you know, eight or nine the next morning. Mm. Um, that, was, um, that, that was probably the other big one. And I remember in the 90s the street press being huge, the free yeah. newspapers that would uh, list all the gigs that were happening that week and review all the releases and, you know, it was just a really great way in every city to be kept in touch with what was happening locally in your scene. Uh, it sounds similar to here, to, to the U.S. And as, I mean, we had uh, 120 minutes on MTV every Sunday night, which was a huge deal uh, for a lot, breaking a lot of these bands. But, yeah, the the local free uh, papers at that time played a huge role in, in supporting the scene. And I don't think it sounds like in terms of radio, maybe it wasn't as, I don't maybe it was a little bit more fractured here, but, um, but obviously there was, there was enough, you know, alternative radio going on to help and college radio had a little bit of a uh, bigger presence than maybe it, it had ever had in the, in the past. Mm-hmm. Is college radio a thing in, in Australia? Um, you know, student-run radio stations? We have what's oh, called community radio, which yeah. is often linked to a university, but not always. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in each city, it's kind of stronger or less strong, depending on its history. Here in Sydney, there was a radio station called 2SER that had some great music shows. But I think Melbourne was, again, the real hub, both for the music scene and for community radio music stations. They had two music stations down there, still do. And, um, yeah, they were really big in, in breaking bands and supporting local acts. Yeah, spot on. Um, and I want to throw in Triple Z up in Brizzy as well. They're celebrating their 40th year this year. So um, they've been around for a while. I'm curious as to, you know, one of the things that, Nirvana did was what Dan mentioned earlier, you know, it opened up the floodgates and I read about, and I think I remember hearing this back in the day 
but the way that Silverchair got signed was they they got, they won a demo contest, <laughs> and it got them into the studio. I'm curious about you know in the U.S. they had you know similar things, maybe not in exactly the same way as like a demo contest, but there were some other ways that people could sort of in non-traditional ways get their band heard. And I'm curious as to you know that to me almost sounds like an an early version of um of like American Idol or uh, X Factor or one of those things where you know it's a instead of a you know a traditional you you play a bunch of gigs and you get signed it's a, a contest version of that. I'm curious how that impacts you know bands that are forming now. Are they is it more of the traditional you know going out and gigging and and doing the the hard road to you know get signed to a label or is it more of like the modern i guess um you know you draw your attention through viral or whatever some sort of an uh, online or or television um talent contest how how are you know how is that different now than say during the 90s First of all, I have to say I love it that you likened uh, the Silverchair process <laughs> to American Idol because what happened with Silverchair was there was a music TV show on SBS, which is another government-funded uh, TV station we have here. So that music TV show and Triple J got together. They did the demo competition and then Triple J got Silverchair in to record that song tomorrow that was their first big single. And kind of following that, Triple J put a program in place called Unearthed where they went around to regional towns around Australia and got bands in those towns to send in their demos and then they picked the best demo from each town. And uh, that's how bands like Grinspoon got discovered, Killing Heidi, Missy Higgins you might know of. So some big artists came through that process, which, yeah, I guess if you think about it, is like a demo cassette version of American Idol. But I think now it's a little bit different because so much does happen online. So Unearth still exists, but in a very different format. Instead of asking people to send in demos, there's actually a website that anyone can find. It's triplejunearth.com. And new bands can upload their music there. It's then available as a free MP3 download. And there's different competitions run at different parts of the year where artists get to do things like play at music festivals. Um, so that's the way Triple J deals with it. And a lot of alternative acts still can get a leg up through that process. But I think, you know, thanks to the internet, a lot of bands just do it on their own now as well with all the things that you talked about, social media and, you know, making their own clips and things like that. Yeah, the, the way I've seen it go, um, and I completely agree with everything Dan's just said there, but um, the way I've seen it go recently is that, the you know, the whole Facebook, et cetera, thing has taken off. But I think some of the bands have really embraced, not, not so much embraced pirating, but embraced the fact that they can't stop it and they pretty much give the music away and, and it increases their audience so much because every, everyone will just be friends with them on Facebook and they just upload a song and everyone will listen to it and all of a sudden they've got a much bigger following and a, and a, a small band like a, a Violent Soho or a Smith Street band who are, I don't, they're barely even radio bands, they don't ever play a gig that's not sold out anymore and they launch, I mean I think I sent Tim a link to um, Violent Soho had a t-shirt of them as the Simpsons or the Simpsons as them sort of thing. They'll, they'll go and launch 
like unique merchandise over the internet, like a hundred copies of, uh, and the and the vinyl as well, of course, um, and make their career that way. But they're basically giving the music away. Hmm. I, I think in the uh, yeah in the states you see a little bit of that, but I think there's so many older artists that are so entrenched in the former model that there's a lot of resistance to do that. And a lot, yeah. but I think younger bands, I think younger bands, you know, are embracing it. But there's obviously you know classic rock is huge here, so that. You know the the music scene is, uh, or music music business, I should say, is you know kind of split between. If you talk about rock and roll, between you know older acts and newer ones, and um, most of the older ones just are really having a hard time with that sort of idea of you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you're gonna have to make your money another way potentially, or you know you're not gonna make as much through the sale of a of a song as you, as you used to, and you're gonna have to you know go out and play more live and that sort of thing. Well, I think the, for these guys, they probably weren't selling many records because no one had heard of them. So, mm-hmm. um, and this was a way of getting heard about, basically. Sure. And I think as well, there's probably very few bands in Australia who have been able to build a career on selling music. So it's not as expected here. Everybody is expecting to go out and gig hard and maybe even have a second job, and that's how they survive. Right. What is what is touring like? You know, is it um, is it pretty likely that you'll I mean, what what would a tour look like for a band in Australia? Do you hit like the coasts and hit the three big cities, or or how, what does that look like? Or say like a maybe a, a small or medium size, you know, upstart band. A band like Violent Soho would probably go to five capital cities, and maybe you know there'd be five to ten regional towns that they could easily sell out. Mm-hmm. There's huge distances to get through here, obviously, and. Mm-hmm. For a band that has a sound that can attract a regional audience, they can tour pretty easily on the road. But for a band that has a sound that only kind of caters to an inner city kind of crowd, it Mm -hmm. is really hard to get beyond the three cities on the East Coast. So can you guys uh, talk about Big Day Out? Because um, (laughs) it it seemed like the festival thing is something that really only caught on in in the United States because of the alternative movement in the 90s before that you know there were one-offs of festivals but it was really Lollapalooza that sort of brought that idea which was in the UK with a lot of big festivals and then Big Day Out which I think it this is the first year in quite a while that there isn't going to be a Big Day Out am I right? It skipped one year recently and then came back but now it's yeah seems a little more dubious. So can you guys go, if you know, a little bit, because I'm curious, I th- think this is, so this is, was a music festival was held in multiple cities um, yeah, throughout the country? Festival. Okay, it was a touring festival. So similar to Lollapalooza was back in the 90s. It was a group of bands going from city to city. Its very first year was Sydney only, and then it became a touring festival, and The thing that really worked amazingly well for Big Day Out was the very first festival they had Nirvana on the lineup, literally as Nevermind was breaking. Mm. So it was a fantastic lineup, but it was also just a bit of kind of lucky timing for the festival at that point. But after that first festival, it went to all five capital cities in Australia plus New Zealand. So there were six Big Day Outs pretty much every year for nearly 20 years. Okay. It seemed like it was then it basically was like running in parallel to Lollapalooza until, and then recently Lollapalooza became just sort of a standalone 
once a year concert in Chicago. It's not doing the same thing like it used to. Does it's not a traveling concert anymore. So whereas Big Day Out kept that sort of format, is there are there plans to bring that back? Well, as I far think, as I understand, there. Oh, sorry, Gavin, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say. I think from what I've seen there, because Big Day Out encompassed all what was called alternative at the, at the time. So it was. It was heavy, but it could also be you know, your light guitar rock and there could be dance music and it kind of had all of it. And I think that each sort of genre is broken away into having its own festival these days. That makes sense. That's happened here in the United States as well. And Big Day Out also, it was a way of getting the really big international bands out for a festival because even though there were six big days out, they all happened in the space of about three weeks and it happened over Sydney summer. So I think a lot of bands were really attracted to coming here, playing six festival shows over two or three weeks, having a bit of a summer holiday, and um, probably a lot of bands that headlined that festival through the 90s. It would have been hard to get them out here and you know, as a group in, in any other way. Yeah, from a business standpoint for a band to go to make the trip, if you know you have six shows, right, that makes it a lot more appealing than uh, if you only had one and you had a had to you know pay for the flight over there and, and everything that goes with it so that makes a lot of sense yeah, six shows with like 30 or 40 or fifty thousand people so sure like especially for the bands who weren't massive um, I, I remember seeing the jesus lizard um play just before rage against the machine at one of them and you know obviously the jesus lizard are sales wise are tiny compared to that you probably you'd never get them sold out around australia but and but it was fantastic to see them up on the big stage doing that so we touched a little bit on the bands that, you know, in the 70s and 80s kind of formed uh, the foundation of what the 90s uh, sound was in Australia. How did those bands fare in the 90s? Um, you know, in the States, uh, maybe even in the UK as well, to some degree, there was a, there was such a seismic shift that some of those bands, um, you know, they became so out of style. They had difficulty adjusting. Um, we've touched on over the course of the last few years, um, every couple months, it seems we, we touch on one of those bands that kind of transcended and some of them made rather interesting records uh, for better or worse. in the in the nineties, as they try to find their way uh, through the decade, um, what did that look like in Australia for, for some of those bands that existed before and maybe exist now? How did they fare? Uh, during that decade, I, have a, I probably can't think of too many really um, strong examples of that. We have because the bands that came before. I mean, maybe the Angels changed a little bit to sound a little bit grungy, but geez, not much. Um, yeah. Uh, I think I think we kind of stayed more true. I think what happened was that the bands that came before them kind of got held in a little bit more reverence, and certainly were more well known than in their own time. Bands like um, like. The Go Betweens, and I mean, the Go Betweens now in Brisbane, we've got a bridge named after them. But the rain is on its way. Watch the butcher shine his knife. And this town is full of battered wives. Round and bands like the stems and things like that um hmm. because 
previous to this, it was so regional and once again the, the big distances that you couldn't hear any of these bands. And with the 90s bringing in this alternative music, so you did go out and search, okay, what had come before? I, th- I think it made them more, not necessarily popular, but known. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't got an example of one who sort of tried to bring out their grunge album, you know, or their yeah. rap album. Yeah. Well, trying to understand that contrast, it it didn't seem maybe it wasn't as 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 much in Australia. Would you would you agree with that, Dan? Yeah, I think there was always a bit of diversity here. So a band like the Go Between still had other bands coming through with a similar ethos and a similar kind of style. The other band I can think of is the Church that went over to America in the eighties, made a bit of an impact there. I think, and you know, I think bands like the Go Betweens and the Church had a quieter decade through the 90s and even the 2000s and have both had a bit of a resurgence recently. But I don't mm. think it's necessarily because they were out of style, probably just more so that they kind of had their peak moment and then a bit of a natural lull perhaps. If Australia didn't really partake in the hair metal movement, <laughs> then that would eliminate a lot of those bands that, you know, in the US obviously that got uh, their careers ended. Yeah. You know, in the course of a couple months, it, it went from, you know, big budgets and playing arenas to literally uh, trying to figure out what they were going to do for work. <laughs> That's pretty dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think here, if anything, there might have been a little bit of a post-Pixies plethora of indie pop bands in that kind of early to mid-90s period. And maybe that went a little bit out of, out of fashion. And hmm. none of them were necessarily career bands anyway. A few of them were great, though. One of my favorite bands is a band called The Clouds, who was fronted by two women, but definitely were looking to the Pixies in terms of their guitar lines and song arrangements. And I think they did pretty well for a few years. And then that kind of, yeah, there was definitely a musical shift away from bands that were doing a real kind of poppy indie sound. That's interesting, because that seemed that to get particular- even more popular here. Right. On that particular note, we did have one, the the one sort of standout one was Ratcat, who um, sort of came out of nowhere, if you, well, for most people, they came out of nowhere and only probably hung around in the consciousness of everybody for about two years, but they were, I'm not going to say they were the, the, the nirvana of Australia as far as bringing alternative music to the masses, but they were one of the very first bands to be classed as alternative who got huge exposure just across the board and then just disappeared almost as quickly. But they hmm. played that sort of guitar, power pop, but not overly loud version. I've got the article up that you wrote, Dan, the um, Australian bands from the 90s worth revisiting. Of the bands, which were like Glide, Sidewinder, Falling Joys, Snout, which you also generously provided us with the um, MP3s for us to check out before the show, which of the albums and, and bands do you think has held up the best? I, I noticed, like for example, in the... I was listening to the Falling Joys song, and it, it had a almost an '80s reverb to it in a lot of uh, the like the drums and the um, vocals and stuff. It sounded I, I don't know. It had a little bit more of a dated sound than I was expecting, whereas some of the other stuff um, sounded very almost like current. It was it was so well done in terms of production and in terms of songwriting. I'm curious if in terms of those bands that you had in that list. Um, which one's the ones that hold up the very best for you? Yeah, well, in the Falling Joy's defense, their big single was 1991. So they definitely were a band that 
formed in the mid 80s and probably carried a lot of that with them. Gotcha. Um, I reckon, you know, listening back now, I listened to a band like Snout and they were obviously looking to that classic pop Beatles, you know, paperback writer kind of era. And I think because it's such a classic sound, I think that that sustains still today definitely. For me personally, I can still listen to Blue Bottle Kiss over and over. They were a real emotive kind of guitar rock band, not in the way that, you know, the Smashing Pumpkins were kind of big and emo, a bit more, I don't know, a bit more serious, maybe a bit less earnest, I don't know. But, yeah, for me, their production style, really big guitars, just a three-piece setup and really strong vocals, I think that really, really carries for me as well. We reviewed them last year, season four, episode 185. Yep. Oh, which album? Patient. Ah, oh, great. Yeah, my, my favorite's probably Fear of Girls, which was, I think, about 94 and uh, a little bit rougher. Okay. okay. I think I picked the first track off that record as my favorite song of all that of the year when we, when hey. we uh, did our year end. Yeah, I think, I think they made uh, both of our top tens for the year, so. Yeah. I, and I we, think we thoroughly enjoyed the record. Yeah. So uh, the, the band that I want to ask you guys about that we both really enjoyed, but we were both also very, I don't want to say confused, but we had, we had questions, is Spiderbait. Um, we did their <laughs> album Grand Slam, and we thought it was a lot of fun. We had no context for it in terms of it was so diverse and so, I don't know, out there that we couldn't really place it in terms of how it fit into the 90s in an American sense. Can you guys give us sort of a, a, an idea of where Spider Bait were coming from and, and your opinions on them as a band, not necessarily that album, but in terms of Spider Bait as a band and how they fit into all this? For me, I was Spiderbait was one of those bands that once the alternative section of the record store popped up, um, there were three pretty early EPs. I, I they had silly names like Shangri La Da and things like that. I can't remember the exact names. Um, they had a cover of the Goodies, the British TV show, on on their on their their theme song on there, um, and it, it was all pretty good. We we're all kind of amused by it because it was so different to everything we were hearing. And their first album just seemed to take forever to come back, come around. I remember I was on a waiting list to get that album when when that was a thing. Um, the Spanish unfinished Spanish Galleon of Finley Lake. Um, but I do know that it, uh, I had that one and the follow up one, and I and the follow up one had the the huge single "Buy Me a Pony" through Triple J. Did, did that get to number one in the hottest one hundred? Or 
Yeah, that was the first Australian yeah. song to top a big poll that Triple J does every year where they get listeners to vote for their favourite song of the year. And for years, you know, Nirvana won and big overseas bands won, but Spiderbait was the f- very first band to win that poll. Yeah. Australian yeah. band. But I think because listening to them now, for me, they're a bit just a bit too jokey. You know, it's not... <laughs> yeah, I think that's why uh, we were perplexed because it... For a review scenario, like Tim said, we had fun with it, but it was like, okay, well, how does this band, from a career standpoint, how does that work? You know, does it? Do they hold up? Can they, you know, put together a sequence of records that are strong, and can they build a fan base being that quirky and, you know, varied? Yeah. Well, as you heard, they're a massive fan base. Yeah, yeah, they really did, and I think. Um, Grand Slam, that was their fourth album. So obviously by that stage, they had a big fan base. They just won the Hottest 100. They could sell out shows really easily. So I'm guessing that they just decided to go and do something even more crazy and more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, they were really close, closely linked to a band called Regurgitator that were also out of Brisbane that were also kind of this crazy hard rock guitar band that then started doing disco songs. And I think it's just part of that scene. I, I mentioned earlier in, in the chat that um, something about Brisbane is really a little bit eccentric and a little bit quirky, and there's a lot of bands from there that have a real kind of, you know, stuff-it attitude, like we're just going to do whatever we want. And, yeah, I think it, it really worked for Spiderback here because it really um, it made them a bit loved for their, you know, not wanting to fit in, not needing to fit in. I think Australians quite like that. Mm-hmm. I just, can I throw oh. in a strange regurgitator fact for you too? Probably the um, only band I've ever heard who've managed to drop a C-bomb in the middle of a song that is played <laughs> at the time on high rotation on, like, normal FM radio and without uh. anybody noticing. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Like, like literally the the radio stations just didn't know the word was there. They mustn't have because they, they, they would have got – I mean, they wouldn't have played it, so they mustn't have known. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> song called Blubber Boy, if you ever get to listen to that. Oh, yeah. But because huh. of the Australian accent, it's uh, – yeah. the song and the way we say, for example, can't isn't too uh, – <laughs> Good point. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well made. Can't in America, right? You know, although I, I found that uh, at least the records we've reviewed, I I haven't really picked up on an accent in terms of singing. Have you, Tim? I like no. So, some of these bands, I it wouldn't be. It's not. I think the production maybe in the quirkiness sometimes stands out as being more um, Australian to me at this point when I listen to the bands as opposed to you know obviously the uh, a lot of the Brit pop you can tell you know, with the accents and they become a heavy part of the style of the music, um, at least for, you know, American ears. But I feel like with a lot of these bands, like the accent doesn't come through on the vocal. Do you guys? Depends on the band. Uh, if yeah. you listen to Jebediah, I don't know okay. if you guys are with them. Yeah. Something very Australian about their delivery. Okay. But yeah, that's you're funny. right. I mean, a band like Nirvana, obviously they grew up listening to a lot of American bands and that's the style that they sang in. There'd be plenty plenty of people kind of mimicking mimicking accents that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe a band like Tism you might notice the accent on too because they throw in a lot of sort of local vernacular as well and you know, references. 
I, I think we've picked it up more with the UK bands. Uh, they just tend to have, especially a lot of the Brit pop bands, because it was such a reaction to American music. They were trying to distance themselves in a lot of ways from American. That the the British accent or the UK sound really, you know, like on you listen to like Park Life by Blur. There's a clear accent that Damon mm-hmm. Albarn is affecting on that record that even kind of goes away as that band moves forward. But I, I, one thing I had to bring, or one artist I had to bring up because my wife is a huge fan, is uh, Ben Lee. He's sort of a, an outlier in all this, in that he was like, I think he was a teenager when Noise Addict sort of became a, a, a big deal. And I, I remember them being a big deal here in the United States. Were they as big a deal in Australia? I'll give that one to Dan. I'd, I'd, even heard, I'd never heard of him before I've heard of Ben Lee. Yeah, okay. I think they were a bit of a big deal here, but definitely it was Thurston Moore discovering them and talking them up that exposed them both to U.S. audience and audiences here. I don't think they were being played much on the radio here until then. I think when Ben really got known here, though, was when he started his solo career. And again, Triple J played a lot of his music and he had a song that topped the big um, Hottest 100 poll. And... um, you know, that was a bit more of a poppy sound because Noise Attic was that real kind of grungy, dirty American style. I just don't think it was getting played here. Okay. So was he, I guess, is he, uh, the artist that I compare him to um, in the United States is is Ben Folds in the sense that he's been able to stay relevant through other things. I think Ben, doesn't Ben Lee do the voice? Isn't he like a, a judge on the voice? Or, or involved with he's, the voice in Australia? He's been one of the coaches where they bring someone in for a season to work with one of the teams. Okay. So he hasn't been going judge. Yeah, Ben's an interesting career path to follow here because, like I said, his early solo work was really big. Then he started going even more pop, I think, than an alternative audience would accept, but probably not quite pop enough to go to the mainstream. So he sits now in this funny, almost no man's land where the alternative kids probably think he's a bit too clean cut, but the mainstream haven't yet heard a song that, you know, can rival a Katy Perry or whatever the mainstream radio plays. Mm. The curse yeah. of, uh, of power pop. Uh, <laughs> we've talked about in the past, there's so many bands, so many great bands, um, especially in the 90s that, uh, you know, were power pop and the whole point was to be in some way accessible right and emulate uh, bands like the Beatles or the Birds or Beach Boys but yet there's sort of this tragic like never fully being embraced by the mainstream that you know is just always part of the story which is uh, a bit ironic well we're almost we're getting close to the hour mark so we should probably wrap this up and I want to ask Dan and Gavin for our listeners um, here in the United States if there is one particular band or one particular album that they probably missed and they need to go back and find and listen to, what that might be um, from Australia in the 90s. Dan, I'll start with you. Ooh, that's hard. It's like making a mixtape. You have to know what people are already listening to and liking to know what to then recommend for them. But... I guess my speciality's always been pop more than hard rock or whatever. 
So I'm going to pick a really great pop record that came out in the later half of the 90s by a band called Dead Star. They were from Melbourne. They were fronted by a great female singer called Carolyn Kennedy. And their second album called Milk was out in 1997, and it just had some real killer pop songs on it. That was the uh, favorite song that you sent over for me. Oh, Don't It Get You Down, that single? Yeah. and uh, yeah, That I just, was a cool song. Yeah, that was the band as soon as I went through the, the songs you sent over. That was the band that I started researching right away to see if I could get some more stuff from. So I was really into that. Great vocal and just a great pop song. And now Absolutely. They did three albums and Caroline Kennedy was in a fantastic band before that band called The Plums and they were a bit more kind of dirty and a little bit grungy. But um, yeah, Dead Star was a great radio radio band. Gavin, what do you got? Um, well, I guess my mine's already out there. That was um, Scream Feeder, um, the very first suggestion I made for you. Scream Feeder Kitten Licks is an album I still listen to all the time. Um, and I think I mentioned to you earlier, and I'm going to see them this afternoon. Um, so as far as one that you haven't heard before, I'd, I'd say The Mark of Cain, an album called Ill, Ill at Ease, um, is a very strong album and probably quite opposite to what, uh, to what Dan's just suggested. It's, um, like I said before, they were, they were making the noises of Helmet before most people had heard Helmet and certainly before anyone out here had. Well, I like that name and I like that comparison, so I'm definitely going to check out that band. No worries. I'm pretty sure they're on the stick. Excellent. That's, that stick has has done us well for many a year. I'm sure it's going to keep doing us well. We got to wrap up. We're at we're at the uh, quitting time here, and uh, especially me because it's 12:30 in the morning, which means that uh, my two year old is going to wake up in the next six hours and scream at me. So uh, I need to thank Gavin for coming back on and uh, sharing his wisdom with us. Um, we always appreciate it. And we'll have a review from Gavin next week. Kim Salmon and the Surrealists self-titled record from 95. That review is coming up uh, one week from this with this episode. So thanks again, Gavin. No worries. Thank you. And Dan Bahaja, producer and writer, Double J Radio. Thank you for so much for coming on. We're, I'm glad we were able to figure out the times and get you on. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, no worries. My pleasure. It's great to have you guys spreading the love of Australian music. And people can catch you on uh, Twitter at... Uh, Dan Bahaja. It's hard to spell, so they should probably just look on your website for my name. Just but look on our website. Doublej.net.au. It's a radio station here in Australia. It's also a great website. Lots of Australian music from the past and the present. And, of course, check out her article, 10 Australian Bands uh, from the 90s Worth Revisiting. That's it. We are uh, we're done, Jay. Another episode in the books. Like I mentioned, we got the Kim Salmon episode coming up. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Jay. 
Uh, if you like the episode, please head on over to iTunes, leave us some positive feedback, and that's it. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. 